The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning, as we pick up on our series looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to spend the next several weeks, six or seven to eight, uh, to be ex- almost exact, um, uh, we're going to be looking at prayer and the Lord's Prayer, uh, of coming and, and diving in to this beautiful prayer, which has historically been called the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord never prayed this prayer. This is best described as a disciple's prayer. This was a prayer given by the Lord to the disciples, to us who are followers of him, not just for the disciples, but for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And we're to learn how to pray, that it is a pattern of prayer, that it is a picture of the broader understanding of the prayer life of the believer in relationship to our Heavenly Father, what it does in and through us, what we are asking, and how it changes us. And so this morning, we're going to read several passages, two from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and then one from Luke's Gospel in chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me first to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then he picks up in chapter 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of one of you, uh, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And then flipping over to Luke's gospel, beginning in chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, And as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, 
For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks and receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. And so we enter into this study, this prolonged study of prayer, of looking at prayer and its essential nature within the life of the Christian. And as we enter into this time of learning, of teaching, we're going to look at five things today briefly. This is a primer on prayer. We could teach, as it were, for a year on the topic of prayer, of going into the great prayers within the Scripture, all of the different nuances and the thoughts and the deep truths that we learn. But this morning, we're going to touch just on a few of those things that we need to learn and then pick up on several more of them in the weeks to come. And the first thing that I want you to gain and to understand is Jesus' teaching highlights the importance of prayer in the life of the believer. Jesus' teaching highlights the importance of prayer in the life of the believer. Now, this was Jesus, the greatest preacher who ever preached, preaching the greatest sermon uh, that was ever preached. He's beginning his public ministry with the disciples who are gathered around him, and he's been teaching them, the twelve who are around, and then those, the hundreds who are gathered beyond that. And the question rises, arises, would you teach us to pray? And he doesn't say, I'll get to that later. That's for graduate level disciples. You're remedial level still, and so we're not going to go there. What he's teaching us from the very outset, from the very beginning of discipleship, from the very beginning of relationship with, of a person with Jesus Christ, a relationship of a person with their heavenly Father through the saving work of Christ, is the essential nature of a prayer life. And to understand within that prayer life that we come to the Lord always asking a couple of questions. I learned this many years ago, and it stuck with me, that as you enter into prayer with the Lord, there's two things that you need to be aware of. One, remember who you're praying to. Remember the audience. Remember who you're talking to. And then the second thing, remember who's talking. That it's incredibly important for us to remember who God is, and then to remember who we are in relation to Him. And so Jesus comes, and as we enter in with those questions, he begins to expand that beauty. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. That familial name of fatherhood, and that he's not just my Father, but he's your Father. He is our Father. And in that, that makes us siblings. That makes us family who approach this Father through the work of Jesus. 
uh, that we approach Him and hallowed be Thy name. That His name is to be honored and glorified. His kingdom is to come. His will is to be done on earth as it is uh, in heaven. And then finally, after all of that, then we get to a change of pronoun. From your to our. Jesus is saying, remember who you're talking to first. And then remember who's talking. Father, would you give us our daily bread? Because I, in and of myself, can't even provide for myself. Would you forgive me my sins against you? Because I can't be forgiven unless you forgive. Can you lead me away from temptation? Would you do that because I'm weak? And it's a remembrance of these two truths right at the outset, just even in the structure of prayer. And so we see within this importance of prayer, uh, I want to read a quote for you by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. In his sermons uh, on this text, he writes, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. When man is speaking to God, he is at his very acme. It is the highest activity of the human soul, and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Let that sink in for a moment, if he's accurate, and I believe he is. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Don't get too many amens in a Presbyterian church, but that'd be a good place for one. (laughs) Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Amen? It's easier to give a tithe and offer. It's easier to show hospitality. It's easier to go on a short-term mission trip. It's easier to do a lot of things. But a sustained, intimate, deep, profound, meaningful, biblically enriched, Prayer life between the child and the father. Ah, it's incredibly difficult. And Jesus was saying it is so difficult, but it is so necessary that I'm giving you a pattern of prayer. He's not necessarily giving us a prayer to pray. He's giving us a pattern of prayer because he says, don't pray this, pray like this in Matthew. And he says, pray like this saying, I want you to understand how I approach my Father with the exception of those clauses that speak of forgiveness. I come to Him. And if you look at the high priestly prayer of John 17, you'll see much of the pattern of the prayer that the Lord taught the disciples in His prayer. And we recognize that the disciples were fascinated with Jesus' prayer life. He was coming back to them at this point from a time in a season of prayer with the Lord. He'd spend all night uh, with God uh, at night. He would sneak away, as it were, to be alone with the Lord. And I wonder what the dialogue was with the disciples. When Jesus was gone and somebody woke up and was like, where's Jesus? It's 4 a.m.? What does he talk about all night? What, how does he have so many words? I start praying and I'm done in like five minutes. And he's gone all night. And James looks over at John and goes, we don't even talk and we're brothers like that. Have you ever talked to dad like that? No, I mean all night? What are you supposed to say to the man? Husbands and wives maybe on the outside listening in, uh, looking in and going, we're done. I mean, it's like a grunt and a smile and a hello and that's deep intimacy. Hey, hey, how was your day? 
Good. Dinner? Sure. Bed? Okay. All right. And they were fascinated by Jesus. Saying, Lord, teach us to pray. We want to know what it is that you have in your relationship with your Heavenly Father that is so incredible that it keeps you up all night. Not in anxiety, but in deep intimacy. And so he begins to teach them. You see, we fall back on an excuse that says we just don't have enough words to say. Folks, that's not the problem. We have plenty of words when it comes to complaining and belly aching. We never run out of words in criticism. William Cowper, the wonderful hymnody, uh, pastor and writer of hymns, wrote this in one of his hymns. Have you no words? I think again. Words flow apace when you complain and fill your fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of all your care. Were half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent, your cheerful song would oftener be, hear what the Lord has done for me. It's not a problem of economy of words. It's a problem of using words in the right way, of having the right conversations with the right audiences. Jesus was starting with the importance of prayer. And then he was beginning to teach us a pattern of prayer, a pattern of prayer, the importance of prayer, and now a pattern of prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you go, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. He's beginning to give a pattern of prayer, and we're going to unpack this over the next weeks, but I'll give you just three of those headings in that pattern. One is that it's private and intimate, that it's a private and intimate prayer. He's saying don't go out and be seen. He's not saying don't have public prayer meetings. He's saying don't ever uh, just not pray publicly or in gathering times of worship, but remember that your prayer is not for public consumption. Remember that the prayer isn't about you. It is about the one to whom you are praying. It is about that relationship. He's saying there's a, there is a prohibition, not on public prayer, but on prayer in public that makes others notice you. And only you can come to that place of motive, of knowing why you like to pray the way we do, uh, that we want to pray in these ways. So it's to be in private. It's to be personal. When you go in private and you shut the door, say to your heavenly Father, for he's a Father who knows what you need, and he knows and answers before you even ask it. There is a deep family relationship that it is built, uh, that this sense of prayer and the pattern of prayer and what we're going to talk about fully next week is building on this, that it's personal in that way. And recognize, too, that there's no redundancy. There's no empty repetition 
He's saying, don't do like the Gentiles do. The Gentiles in their pagan religions, uh, the Gentiles in their Greek and in their Roman, in their old Baal uh, and Asherah religions, they would do incantations. They would do mantras. They would do these things to try to get their gods going. And they'd repeat it over and over again, thinking that if they could muster up enough energy and they could say it over and over and over again, then they could get their God to act on their behalf. I find it fascinating that the very passage of Scripture which says that we're not to use empty repetition in order to get God to act is the very passage of Scripture that the Roman Catholic Church uses to say, now, if you want God to forgive you and you want to be in good standing with the Lord, say, ten our fathers. Repeat this prayer in mantra form. And in doing that, you will get God to act on your behalf. Oh, how we've missed it. This isn't a prayer to try to get God to do anything. This is a prayer that is shaping us in the presence of God. And so he's saying this pattern of prayer, it's important to have prayer. Now the pattern of prayer of private, personal, and no repetition. And then he begins and he starts to teach and he says, okay, so we see that it's important. We see that it has a pattern that we're going to develop over time. But recognize that this pattern is built off of one primary foundation, one basis. This is the basis of prayer. The basis of prayer is the fatherhood of God. The basis of your access to God, the basis of your prayer life, the very foundation of the intimacy with which you have with the, you have with the Father is through the completed work of Jesus Christ whereby you are adopted as sons and daughters. The whole world doesn't get to call God Father. They may be, with a little small f, can say, well, you created all things, therefore uh, I am, uh, you are my father, but I don't get to come in and knock on your door whenever I want to. That access, that, that access, uh, that availability, that is specifically given to his children who have received the spirit of sonship given by the Holy Spirit that says, now we cry out, Abba, Father. That we who were far off, we who were aliens, we who were enemies, we who were haters of God, we who had a debt that could never be paid on our, uh, by our own merit, we now have been given through Christ's work this most incredible statement that we get to say to God, Father, Dad, I want you to hear me. I need you to hear me. I want to see you as grander than I see you now. I want you to expand my knowledge of who you are. I want your life to be wrapped into mine and mine into yours. Father, Father, I come to Thee. I come to You. The foundation and the basis of our prayer is through the completed work of Christ that we are adopted as daughters and sons. Isn't that awesome? If some of you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus in that way, this is the invitation to say, if you want access to God, it has to come through Christ. Not even through your participation this morning. Not through the good things that you're going to do this week and not for how badly you feel about the bad things that you're going to do this week. But through Christ alone. He is our access to God. And through Christ, we gain something. It is the orphan's wildest dream. We get to call God Father. What an amazing reality. Oh, if that would just sink in to us a little bit. 
So we've seen there is an importance to prayer. It is in many ways what defines our spiritual life. And it is a struggle, isn't it? How many of you struggle in your prayer life? Those of you who didn't raise your hand, how many of you struggle with lying, honesty? <laughs> I went away this week. I got to spend some time alone. Lisa was with her family, and uh, I got to be alone to work on the sermon series and some other things. And I had such high hopes and aspirations. I thought, I'm alone for five days in a beautiful setting. I don't have to see anybody if I don't want to. I'm just here with my Bible and with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father and all this great stuff. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to pray like crazy because I'm studying about prayer. This is going to be fantastic. And as I wiped off the drool after like five minutes of praying, having fallen fast asleep in prayer, being distracted by an email that popped up somewhere, Finding how difficult it is to pray and recognizing that the evil one, our enemy, attacks at this point almost more than any other point because he knows that if he can steal this powerful intimacy of the child to the father, he can neutralize us within the world. That's why it's so important. That's why we're spending eight weeks on this together, of studying prayer of recognizing there's a pattern to our prayers to begin to shape us and to critique us, as it were, in our prayer life, to recognize the foundation of our prayer uh, is through the Father in and through the work of Jesus to be able to call him Father. And then to recognize within our prayer life there's an urgency to prayer. There's an urgency to prayer. If you were in Luke's gospel and you recognized this and you were hearing this parable that he gives, Jesus says, hey, here's what prayer is like. Prayer is like if you're in your home and at midnight somebody shows up at your door, they're traveling, and they come to your door, and there is an expectation within Eastern culture and in Jewish culture, not only in their cultures, but in their cultures it is highlighted of friendship and relationship, of the duty and the responsibility. It was huge and it was high, even greater than what we would call a southern hospitality. It was a picture of deep and profound friendship that there would never be a moment when you were transgressing, as it were, your friendship, that you could show up at midnight and you would expect to have a meal given to you. And so the friend, somebody comes to his door at midnight and he walks in and he says, hey, I'm just coming through, I'm on my way uh, to Jerusalem and I just needed a place to stay. And the guy, the husband, looks up and he goes, oh no, hey babe, do we have any bread? Bob's here. Just Bob? Well, Bob and Sue and all the kids, a couple of mules and a couple of other things. Any bread? We're out. For us, no big deal. Bob, Sue, sorry, we're glad you're here. You get the upper room there. You can go to bed, put the, put the sheep in the backyard. We'll get some breakfast in the morning. Ah, oh, but in their culture, the man was undone. And so he went next door, and he knocked on the friend's door, and he said, hey, Bob showed up. You know Bob, the midnight traveler. He likes to show up midnight, forgets to call. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, Bob's here. We're out of bread. Go away. We're in bed. And you think, that's weird. Well, they don't live in homes like we lived in. 
It would probably have been a single room home. And the whole family would have been sleeping together on the floor. And when the door was shut, the door being shut in that culture, because normally the doors are open. They didn't live 350 feet back from the road, behind gates. They didn't live disconnected from their neighbors. They didn't have all that. They lived in a communal way. And so the doors were open, but when the door was shut, that was equal to having a do not disturb sign on in the hotel. We've gone to bed for the night. We're done for the evening. If you come, I have to wake up my wife, and then the kids are going to wake up. And if the kids wake up, then everybody's up. This isn't a good time. But we don't have any bread. And his friend finally opened the door. And I want you to understand a bad teaching on this passage of Scripture. A bad teaching on this passage of Scripture says this. It is by your incessant pounding that you will make a reluctant God bless you. Some of you have been taught that. That by your constant urgent pounding upon the door of heaven, a reluctant God will get up out of his bed that he is safe and he is quiet and he is asleep and he doesn't have time to bother with you, but because you're such a pain in his royal backside that he will get up and he will come and take care of you. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this. It is based not upon your pounding, but upon the quality of friendship and the expectations of friendship that the door is opened and that the bread is given. There is a sense in which our approach is important, how we come, because he picked up on that. He said, hey, I want you to understand this. In prayer, you need to understand uh, that your neighbor, God, your best friend, the ultimate friend, the Father, he will always give you what you need. And if you need bread at midnight, he's going to give you bread at midnight. Uh, If you need this, he's going to give you this. If you need that, he's going to give you that. He's not a reluctant friend who you have to coerce to do something that he doesn't want to do. He is a loving father who gives good gifts to his children. But as you approach him, you can learn something from the neighbor. And he says this, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. I tell you, it's a henna clause in the Greek. He's saying, this is moving along my argument. I'm pushing it forward. He said, here's what I want you to understand. Ask and go on asking. Seek and go on seeking. Knock and go on knocking. It becomes pattern-esque. It is fundamental to the Christian life, not supplemental to our spiritual life. That this kind of asking, this kind of seeking, this kind of knocking, it brings with it a sense of urgency that we come to the only place to the only one who can actually do what we need him to do. That we don't have another neighbor. And we're not presuming a friend of friendship. We recognize the friendship that this is the kind of friend we have. This is the kind of God we have. This is the kind of father we have who doesn't mind being disturbed at midnight. He's not busy doing something else. And so we come with urgency at any time into his presence. We come with consistency that we come regularly to Him and we come with clarity. Think about how those three words, consistency, urgency, and clarity, uh, are brought into these three things of asking, seeking, and knocking. 
Asking. Ask with an engaged mind and a focused will. You ask with an engaged mind and a focused will. You ask like a teenager who just got their driver's license if she can use the car Friday night. Trust me, there's no meandering around. That there is a clarity of mind. There is a thoughtful presentation of all of the arguments and the counter-arguments, all of the reasons and all of the parents' rebuttals, and they're going to come back and present with quite a bit of urgency an engaged mind and a focused will. No vague generalities in that one. He's saying that's how you should be praying. Be praying that way. Be very specific in your prayer request. Seeking. Seek and keep on seeking. What are you seeking? Or how are you seeking is a better way to ask the question. Seek with the object of finding and obtaining. Seek with the expectation of finding and obtaining. That you are looking for something. That you're seeking it. You're not haphazard. Again, you're not meandering and wandering in this way. You're not Alice when she comes to the split in the road and the Cheshire cat is there and she says, hey, which path should I take? And he goes, well, where do you want to go? Well, it doesn't really matter. Well, then it doesn't matter which path you choose. Oftentimes, that's how we are in our prayer life with God. But we shouldn't be looking and seeking like that, but much more. Like a few years ago, Lisa and I were on the beach And we noticed a couple of parents jump up from their chairs and run down towards the water. And we knew what was happening. They couldn't find their daughter. Their little girl was missing. The parents didn't haphazardly walk around the crowd on the beach that afternoon. They were seeking with the object of finding their daughter. They knew that they needed to find her. They were laser focused in. They didn't get distracted along the beach and go, oh, so where are you from? Oh, Ohio. I have some friends from Ohio. And play the name game for five minutes. No. They looked for their daughter. And the good news of that story, it ended well that they found her. Because the parents were seeking with the object of finding. And knocking, you're knocking with an urgent sincerity. You are knocking in the confidence in the heart of God that he is your ultimate friend. That in this constant communication with God through prayer, you're asking and seeking with confidence of finding, which leads to the final point. The final thing that we'll talk about very briefly this morning is our confidence in prayer. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, this is Luke's version, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Your Father give you good things, your Father give you the Holy Spirit. The good things and the Holy Spirit are synonymous The greatest good that the Father can give us is more of himself through the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying this. Well, I'd ask you this question. Does this mean that everything that we ask for in prayer we get? The answer is no. But there's a sad theology of name it and claim it that's going around. If I name it in prayer and claim it, uh, then I get it. That's not how God works. You see, there are certain obligations that the Lord has that he will always answer in the affirmative. Father, I want to be more like you. I'll answer that prayer. 
Father, I want to glorify you in my life. I'll answer that prayer. Father, I want my life to be a living sacrifice. I want to be a witness for you. He'll answer that prayer. He's obligated, as it were, to answer that. But there are no, there are no instances in the scripture of God obligating himself to heal all Christians. Of God giving to all singles who want to be married a spouse. To all children or to all parents who want a child a child. To all people who uh, are, have lost something that they'll find it. There's no absolute promise in those things. But God does make a promise that he will give us what we need. And so with that, I want you to have a couple of little warnings here as you approach this. As we recognize and we pray to God and we come knowing that he's going to answer our prayers, here's some warnings. First, God's not obligated to explain himself to us in prayer. When he doesn't answer in the way that we've predetermined he should answer, or he answers in a way different than what we've predetermined to answer, or if it's just silent and we don't know that he's answering at all, we don't, he doesn't owe us an explanation. Many people I hear when they say, I can't wait to get to heaven, because when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why. God, why this, why that, why that? There is a verse of scripture you need to write down and you need to memorize. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may obey his law. Folks, there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God, and when we get to heaven, there is no promise that we're going to find out why. Because they're his. And he doesn't owe us an explanation. Oh, what a humbling thing. But the scripture is always humbling. Sometimes we need to remember in our prayer life that prayers are often substituted for obedience. Prayers are often substituted for obedience. Another warning, that prayer can often be a cop-out for hard work. God, I really need an A on this exam. Because if I don't get an A, that means I don't pass the class. And if I don't pass the class, I don't have enough credit hours. And mom and dad are going to string me up and they're going to take the car. Now, I haven't done any work. I haven't studied, haven't cracked a book. I was out all night last night uh, doing this, that, or the other. But God, and then when they fail, this could be somewhat autobiographical, uh, when they fail, they say, well, I prayed, and I guess God just didn't want me to pass the class. If your prayer is for purity in your life, then you need to consider what you're watching and listening to and the people that you're around. If I'm unwilling to do any of those things, if I'm unwilling to work hard and I fail, then I can't give the cop out while I prayed about it. So be careful. Another warning, we are poor judges of what's good for us. Ah, what a keen thought we have of what's best for our life. God, if you would only... Anybody started a prayer like that? God, if you would only bring your will into submission to my will, because I've determined what's best for me. And what's best for me is X, Y, or Z. I was listening to Alistair Begg preaching on this. He made this comment. Could it be that the problem we want rid of most is the very means that God wishes to use to conform us into the image of his Son? Could it be that the thing that we want rid of most is the very thing that God wants to use to conform us more and more into the image of his son? Our poverty, 
our health, all of these things. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was, but the Lord left it there because he said, Paul, I know better than you in that way. But Lord, what about my cancer? What about my financial security? What about my parents' divorce? What about these things? It's trusting that we're poor judges of what's good for us. And if we're poor judges of what's good for us, the next point there is we're also poor judges of what's good for other people. So with that, we need to be careful what we pray. We need to be careful of what we do in relationship to other people. As a parent, we should be very careful what we pray for for our children. It may not be what God wants, that we have to trust him The greatest prayer a parent can pray for their child is, Father, would you have my child fall in love with you? Would you expose their sin and bring them to their knees so that they would desperately turn and find you as their loving Father through Jesus Christ? But by the way, I'd like you to do that in a very clean and buttoned-up manner that brings no embarrassment to my family or to my name. And I'd like you to do this in the way that I prescribed. Oh, I wonder how the parents of Jim Elliot prayed. I imagine, having read, that they prayed, would you have our son to be a witness for you and to have an impact for the kingdom? And this bright young man graduating from Wheaton College, going down in his 20s uh, into the Aka people uh, who were in Ecuador to present the gospel to them with a beautiful young wife and with a child to go in and he was killed and murdered by the very people that he was witnessing to. What parent would say, Lord, would you have my son murdered, decapitated by cannibals? But a parent should pray, Lord, would you use my child to do what you would have done in your kingdom for your name's sake and use my life in that way. Because, you see, here's a little point underneath this. God is more concerned about his glory and his church than he is about our individual lives. That doesn't mean he's not concerned about our individual lives, but it means he's concerned about the broader, the bigger picture. And I would say this, Jim Elliott's life has not forgotten It reverberates into eternity. And there are people in heaven because a 20-something-year-old man believed in the promises of God and he went and was martyred because the church is built upon the blood of the martyrs. And yet here we are, we don't even want a flea bite of persecution in our lives. But yet we say, God, to you be all glory and honor. We don't know what's best for us and we don't know what's best for our children. You see, this demands a humility on our point. And I'll end here. I'm running long. I apologize. I'll end with this thought. Jesus' emphasis in using this parable in Luke 11 is to highlight that God is an ultimate friend and a good father. And when he answers prayer, he answers them with the best possible answer. There was a quote that I put in the beginning of the liturgy for you, and it says this by Tim Keller, God will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would ask for if we knew everything he knows. Here's what God says about good gifts. I'm going to give you, if you come and pray to me, I'm going to give you the greatest gift you could ever receive, and that's more of me. I'm the ultimate good. I will give you a deep and more profound knowledge of who I am. I will build your faith upon a bedrock that can never be shaken. I will show you my glory 
And, and I will have it reverberate into your life. Now, it may take you down roads that you would never go down on your own. It will put you in concentration camps. It will put you in places of persecution. It will put you on a sick bed. It, it will put you at a graveside. It will put you in places where you never dreamed you would go. But trust this, I'm not a father who when his son or daughter asks for a stake, gives them a scorpion. I'm not the kind of God who gives a shabby substitute for a goodness. I give you the greatest good that I could ever give, and that's me. And so what he's saying to us as his children is this, do you trust me? Do you know me intimately enough to say to our God, Father, as the one who taught us this prayer said, not my will, but thine be done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for prayer. Thank you that we have access to you. Thank you that we are known by you and know you. Thank you that you're a good father, the best of friends. That you give us what we need in our times of desperation. You give us what we need in the times of flourishing. For you know us. You know what we pray before we pray it. You know what we ask before we ask it. You're the beginning to the end. And so, Father, this morning as we wrestle with, with these truths, I pray that you would show us more of your beauty, more of your grandeur, and that you would be a hope for our ruined lives, that you would be a strength and a stronghold for our souls. To you be all glory and honor. Amen. Let's stand and sing.